Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkison, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. It's safe to say that the biggest story in education right now is COVID learning loss. How big were the losses? Which students were hurt the most? And to what extent did remote learning play a role? Last week, NAEP scores were released to much fanfare. And although those results from our nation's report card paint a bleak picture of learning loss, they paint one that's not very detailed. To fill in some of the gaps, late last week, a collaboration of the Educational Opportunity Project at Stanford University, the Center for Education Policy Research at Harvard, and Stanford SEPA launched the Education Recovery Scorecard. By linking NAEP scores with state assessment results, the Education Recovery Scorecard gives us the first chance to really compare learning loss at the district level across the country and it will surely prove a valuable tool for better understanding COVID learning laws. To discuss the scorecard, I invited one of the project leads, the inimitable Tom Kane, onto the podcast. Tom is the Walter H. Gale Professor of Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and the faculty director of the Center for Education Policy Research at Harvard. Tom, welcome to the report card. Thanks, Nat, and thank you for contributing data to this project. A critical part of what we were doing was was using the return to learn tracker that AEI collects. Well, thank you for uh, using. I'm glad it's useful. We put some blood, sweat, and tears into that one, and uh, we're glad that it is useful. Tom, let's start with big picture with NAEP, which came out last week. It's the National Assessment for Education Progress. Uh, for those who haven't been reading any press coverage over the past week, how, how would you summarize what NAEP results show? So the most important message was just, at least for me as an education researcher, was just seeing the magnitude of the losses. I think people saw, oh, you know, we were down um, eight points in, in eighth grade math and I think it was five points in in fourth grade math. But those may just sound like numbers to people. But when I heard those, I was thinking magnitudes. Like the, there's been substantial progress in eighth grade math since 1990. You know, I, I think we've, we haven't talked enough about the progress that's been made over time, you know, it's been slow and gradual, but substantial in some places. And the striking thing was that we gave up 40% of those increases over the last couple of years. Eighth grade math, we lost 40% of the progress we'd made since 1990, just in you know, the three years between 2019 and and 2022. And those were costly losses. We did some analysis of, you know, eighth grade math scores are related to all sorts of things, you know, in terms of incomes, educational attainment, teen motherhood rates, incarceration rates. And somehow we've got to figure out how how to turn these around in the next few years. So when people ask, right, those magnitudes, they really are hard to express. Even if you say, well, look, we lost 40 percent of the gains since 1990. If you're a parent or if you're, you know, just the average layperson, it's hard to know. What is eight points? And, you know, you hear some of these folks say, well, that's, you know, 
70% of a school year's progress or 70% of a grade or something. But what do you think is the best way, at least on the eighth grade math, which is interesting to talk about because those scores were pretty even across the board, right? It wasn't like just one end. How big is an eight point decline on NAEP? That's a great question, Nat. And to provide at least an answer on that, we went back to look at what happened to people born in states that saw some of the biggest run-ups in eighth grade math scores in the past. So I'm from North Carolina. North Carolina, between 1990 and um, 2019, saw the largest improvement in eighth grade math achievement. They, they saw a bigger improvement in eighth grade math achievement than the black-white gap that existed in 1990. So they moved a whole state by more than the black-white gap was in 1990. And yet there are a number of other states like Iowa that had um, much smaller increases. So so we looked at, okay, what, what happened to the recent, you know, cohorts of kids born in North Carolina where we could look at their earnings uh, and we could look within a state older cohorts versus younger cohorts, what was the change in their incomes? What was the change in educational attainment? What was the change in teen motherhood and, and other outcomes in those states that saw big run-ups in scores versus the states that where scores didn't rise nearly as much? And what we found out was that there were large improvements in, in incomes and educational attainment and so forth. And that allows us to put a price tag on these recent losses. So like given the relationships between test scores and incomes that we saw in the past, an eight point decline nationally would be associated with about a 1.6% decline in incomes. Um, and you might say, gosh, 1.6%, that's not so bad. Well, but when you multiply it by 48 million kids who were enrolled in school during the 2021 school year, it would add up to almost a trillion dollars in lifetime earnings. Like, so that's a, that's a substantial change. And I think actually most of your listeners, if I told them, well, don't worry about it, I'm just going to take 1.6% of your income for the rest of your life, they'd be pretty upset about that. Tom, you know, a lot of people, they don't like to talk about test scores because they think it's, you know, some experts are getting hung up on something. But the association with lifetime earnings, and in this case, we're not talking about 1.6% for some small subgroup. We're talking about it for eighth graders. I mean, that's a big, big group across the nation. And I think it communicates how big a deal it is. Let, let me ask you this. Were there any surprises that you saw in the NAEP results that you didn't expect? Because We've been seeing test scores, you know, dribble out here and there, and we had the long-term trend. Any surprises? So here were a couple of surprises that I think we're still trying to figure out. And that is, so some states that were closed for a long period during 2021 didn't see as big a decline as we were expecting. Like the most obvious example is California. 
California was closed longer than any other state um, on average, or their schools were. And yet the, the losses in California were, you know, smaller than in most other states. That was a surprise. A second thing is that it's it wasn't just California, that within states, even among districts that were closed for the same amount of time, there was just tremendous variation in just the magnitude of the losses. So it's clear that average losses were higher in places that were closed longer. But it's also obvious there were lots of other things going on. So I was surprised by the degree to which remote learning wasn't the dominant explanation for for the losses. It was an explanation, but it wasn't the dominant one. And we've got to do some work now to just try to figure out, can we explain that other variation? For instance, we plan to look at whether it was related to broadband access by district, um, whether the kinds of jobs parents were in, you know, so like we can look at what proportion of parents in a district were working in retail trade or, or other kinds of jobs that were most negatively impacted. Also, you know, local death rates, you know, so family stress, you know, related to illness and hospitalization and, and deaths, you know, maybe that explains some of the variation. So we're, we're going to be digging into this in the next few weeks and just trying to understand more, like, what were the other things driving it? So NAEP was obviously a pretty big deal, but the CETA data, the Stanford Education Data Archive, explain to listeners, like, what is that and why did we need it? You know, we have data. So what does CETA give us that NAEP doesn't? So, Nat, here are two reasons why this was so critical. And, you know, so October 24th was the day that the state NAEP came out. And and we've had that date on our calendar since you know, August or July. So between July and August until now, we've been assembling all this, the state assessment results. And the thing that Nate did not tell us was how did the pandemic affect individual school districts in a state? There are two reasons why that matters. One is, it turns out there were huge differences in the losses by district within a state. So like you heard, you you might hear Massachusetts is down, you know, uh, X points in, in, you know, eighth grade math or fourth grade math. But some communities were down by two X points (laughs) and other communities were down by zero points. And so, so it really matters to know you know, the district by district losses rather than just the state losses. A a second reason why the within state variation was so critical is that's where the decisions are being made about how to use these federal dollars. So, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, the federal government provided around $190 billion for districts. 90% of that money was distributed down to districts. And the decisions about how that money gets spent have very little to do with state or federal you know, requirements. Those decisions are being driven by local communities. And so we were trying to inform 
local decision makers, school boards, superintendents, parent groups um, about the magnitude of the losses in their communities so that they can make plans you know, for this education recovery. So anyway, that for us, the main role of the state NAEP was to allow us to translate the, the district losses and make those comparable across the country. Yeah, I mean, that totally makes sense. That's where the tire meets the road, right? I mean, that's where uh, the actual traction is or isn't. And so I think this is useful. And let me just say, turning this around in less than a work week is a credit to you guys being ready and anticipating, uh, you know, Sean Reardon, the folks at Stanford, being ready to really just get right up to the plate and do it. I'm sure you have ready thing, things to be to plug and play, but I also know that when you try and turn it around quickly, it's it's just a huge undertaking to make sure that everything's working right. And and that like and we had to make sure things were working right because you know if, if we're going to say that you know Winston Salem Forsyth County Schools declined by basically a whole grade level in math. We need to be able to back that up. Like, you know, you know they're going to care if we get that right or if we get that wrong. And so usually in statistics, you're just trying to describe the central tendency. You're trying to describe patterns that you're seeing. But in this case, each data point mattered. And so that, you know, that was that was a struggle was to, like, just make sure that we're, we're getting the story right. And at least so far... You know, we, we haven't gotten feedback from, from anybody saying, hey, look, the, you know, this data point can't possibly be right. Right. And and it's important to note that it's not complete, right? I mean, the 2022 test scores, they're not in for every state. I think you have 29 states. I'm sure you've got New York in the mill right now. You know, you have these new states that are coming on. Um, so, I mean, right now, I know it's missing uh, Ohio, Jersey, and New York, and that's that's a lot of kids, right? So some of this story is, is still coming out. So like you said, we shared the return to learn data and you've backfilled that with Emily Oster's great data to try and get a handle on these in-person learning. Like how, what was the remote learning sort of effect? And there's a lot of expectations loaded on this, this question, right? There's some people that are just like, well, it's a simple story. For every week you went remote, there's going to be a monotonic effect on your test scores. So if you just say overall to try and speak to the different narratives that are out there, it's it seems to me it's sort of tough, right? Because it's not like, no, it didn't matter. But it's also sort of, well, it didn't matter quite as much. The day NAEP came out, I checked it with my data and I thought, hmm, wow, that's not quite what I was expecting. I was expecting something more. So how do you communicate that? Uh, relationship, at least as we understand it right now, which is better than we did the week before. So like you, Nat, like I had been part of the chorus of people all summer who were, you know, pointing to the importance of remote instruction. And I think, you know, it was correct to point out that remote instruction had an effect on student achievement. So we're, we're, I'm not saying that it didn't. It did. But it wasn't the primary story. That was the surprise. I think we can say 
that from some of the public discussion out there, you'd think that the only thing that was going on was was remote instruction, like that that was the sole determinant of whether kids lost ground or not. And we can definitively say that's wrong. And I think there are probably some other people out there who, who might be arguing that, well, like, you know, remote instruction didn't really have an impact on student achievement. Like that end of the spectrum is wrong too. So it, it played a role, but it wasn't the primary driver of achievement loss. And I think most people can, can understand that story, even if it's, it wasn't one of the narratives prior to last week. So let me offer some of the things that I sometimes think about to explain these and have you tell me if I'm off my rock or not. I mean, one of these things like, you know, the reopening data that we have is the data that I collected. And I didn't know how many kids in these districts were going to school. All I could really know was, well, did they make those options available? So in almost all these districts, especially in that first fall, the first full pandemic year, they could open a school, but there's an option for kids to go remote. So it seems to me that even if you say we have in-person learning, well, your in-person learning can vary sort of considerably from, from district to district. And we just don't know. We don't have data across the nation on that. So I think that is probably part of this. And that might mask the signal when we can't actually capture the granular data. Yeah. So Nat, you might actually know better than me is like, will we have better measures of, of just quality of in-person instruction <laughs> anytime soon? Because again, I, I, I would like to think that we could try to I- explain that a bit better. I mean, one thing I will say is, and maybe you've done some of this yourself, we've done some comparison between your data and Emily Oster's data. And for the remote instruction, percent of the year remote, the correlation was high, but not super high. It was, you know, it was around 0.8 or so, or yeah. So maybe if we triangulated these different measures and uh, we we could try to learn something about the, the quality of instruction. But honestly, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, I want to learn more about the out-of-school factors that may have played a role in this, like like parents' employment, uh, parents' um, COVID hospitalization rates, death rates. I think there was a lot of variation from community to community uh, in terms of how many people were getting sick and going to the hospital and dying. And I want to see if some of that can, can explain what was happening, but also, you know, same thing with unemployment. Like, I I think that really varied from, from community to community, uh, just to what extent parents had the kinds of jobs where they could work from home versus parents who, who had, you know, lost their jobs. Yeah. I, you know, researchers always are going to say, well, I wish we had more data, but in in this case, I'd say we really are kind (laughs) of, uh, working with, the best we got, which is, in my opinion, not the data that, that I think we should have. I mean, I have some pretty good data and I'm not 100% confident in it, but 
you know, I'm not sure that I'm the guy who should be sitting on some of the most comprehensive data that we have, because I think we should have better. You know, one other thing that I think is a key portion of this is when you're remote for a long period of time, you might have faced less disruption than in-person schools where quarantines were making sort of a, a mill and where teachers were in and out. And, uh, you know, during that year when we had serious variation over time and across districts in how severe the pandemic was, we had a, a lot of just, you know, churn in these districts. And that churn, it seems to me, would be more disruptive in an in-person district relative to remote districts because they just didn't have to juggle the same factors. Does, does that sound like a, a credible partial explanation? That definitely sounds credible. You know, I heard a lot of anecdotes about lots of churn in, in districts, and, and I'm sure that had an effect not just on the kids that were in and out, but even for the kids who were able to attend regularly. You know, the, the teacher was teachers were probably repeating, you know, lessons, and I'm sure that that had an effect on pace at which teachers were able to, to cover content uh, that year to constantly be having to reteach or, you know, deal with students that, you know, had missed material covered earlier in the week. Tom, I don't want to pick on reporters. That's not what this question is about. But just in the media generally, whether it's in the op-ed sort of sections or the news side or on Twitter, you know, whatever you just talk about the media ecosphere on this particular question of, well, it was remote learning or, or it wasn't, just how would you characterize how you see it being played? Is it is it generally being treated fairly, being treated carelessly? I mean, what's your, what's your observation? So I do think, and I feel like I was partially responsible for this, that there was a, there was a, a narrative beforehand that was, it was, you know, the, the primary or maybe the only story was remote instruction having a disproportionate uh, impact on uh, high poverty schools. And I, I think they've been slow to make the transition with, with the new data um, in providing this more nuanced story, but I think they're getting there. Like I, I think we, I've seen more stories over the course of the past week, which say, "Look, remote learning played a role, but it wasn't the only thing." Um, and 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 I I hope that I hope that continues. All right. Well, I'm going to switch to our section, grade it right now, and then we're going to get into all things recovery. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Uh, working on the Council of Economic Advisors for the Clinton administration. Hey, like I learned a tremendous amount. Like I, I like I, I for anybody who has an opportunity to do one of those jobs, like I, I uh, every day I, I was learning about programs that I wasn't really familiar with. And I'd have to show up at meetings and have, you know, I have an opinion about them. Um, and the great thing about the CEA, uh, the Council of Economic Advisors in almost any administration is that like you're, 
you're just the bad idea police. Like you, you don't really have any, um, any administrative function. Like you, you're, you're not, uh, representing, uh, you know, a, a cabinet, uh, department that might have thousands of employees. Uh, they're just like, you know, between a hundred and 200, I, I'm not sure the exact count employees of the council economic advisors. And so we're not, we're not there, you know, trying to protect our department and protect our, our jobs. We, we're, we're just, we're the people who show up in meetings and say, that doesn't sound like a good idea or that sounds like a bad idea. And, um, and so it's, it's great. You get a chance to learn a ton, but I, but I, I'd have had a stroke if I had to do it for much longer. <laughs> How about, uh, and you're going to have to tell why this is a, perhaps an unfair question, but the measures of effective teaching project. All right. So on MET project, I would give the research part of the MET project a B plus. I would give the implementation side of implementing uh, better teacher evaluations, uh, maybe a D. And, um, and I, in retrospect, I think it was crazy to think that you could redesign teacher evaluations for 3 million uh, teachers and do that well overnight. And if instead, I think if, if we had focused on probationary teachers, so teachers in their first two or, you know, uh, two or three years of teaching, we would have done a better job in, in, in implementing evaluations. And then second, that's where the, the most high stakes decisions are made anyway. And, um, and so I think it would have been higher quality implementation. I think the politics would have been simpler if we had focused a lot of that work on early career teachers. And honestly, I, even though it's still a bit of a third rail, I just can't imagine U.S. education substantially improving without <laughs> addressing the problem we were trying to address. Like, uh, you know, it's still true that there's huge variation in student achievement gains for different teachers. And um, and we're just not going to consistently get better until we make sure that principals are making better decisions about who gets tenure and, you know, provide better feedback to teachers to help them improve. We can't. Yes, it's controversial, but we're just not going to get where we need to go without addressing that. How about master's degree pay premiums for teachers? D, I, th I think it's, I think we waste a lot of money and there's just not a ton of evidence that that, that matters uh, for student learning. All right, I have one that's very topical today. Affirmative action in college admissions. Oh boy. Um, so I'll, I'll let the Supreme Court give the, give the grade on that one. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. We are recording on the day that the uh, Supreme Court is hearing arguments. Um, the potential of online learning for K-12 students. So 
I think one of the things we learned is that at least some kind of in-person contact between teachers and students is is important and it's going to be very difficult for students to learn prim, you know uh, solely on online but you know I'm I'm hoping that we have some kind of we continue working with some hybrid of in-person and, and remote. Like I, I think there's promising evidence on the effects of, of remote tutoring. Um, uh, and there may be something about, it's just easier to develop a, a personal contact with somebody when, when it's just one-on-one on one-on-one online, as opposed to a whole large group online. So just to push on that question a little bit, we we could actually find, given the variation that we're seeing across districts that were closed, that actually some of them did a much better than average job. So it could be a bright spot on the line where we actually say, wow, the surprise is it works some places. So you're right. What I was what I was describing was an average, but you're right. It could be that one of the sources of variation that we're seeing is that some places did it at a heck of a lot better than others. All right. So I want to firmly root this in their situation today, but no excuses, charter schools. You know, B plus, A, a minus, like I, I, I think that, you know, the evidence is pretty strong that they're having, they've had effects on student achievement. We're still actually working on some studies, like looking at the long-term effects, like on, uh, on earnings later, later in life. Um, uh, and you know, the, the problem is you have to wait a long time before, before somebody's earnings, you know, settle down to where you can actually measure them. So you, you typically want people to be 28 or so, and they're, but uh, we don't have enough yet, but, but we're working on some studies where we'll be tracking, um, we'll have enough people who, who were subject to admission lotteries where we can find people who were lotteried in, lotteried out and see incomes later. So, so I, I think they're a critical part of the, of the solution. By the way, I, I think maybe the most important contribution they've made is to show that you can have really huge impacts on student achievement. Like we don't have to live with these, you know, large gaps and sort of, you know, take them as inevitable. They're not, they're not inevitable. And uh, um, now, you know, how do we translate these practices and use what we've learned to try to improve traditional public schools? That's, that's still a big challenge, but I, but I, I think it's it's useful to have some of the no excuses um, charter models out there to, um, to to help us learn, you know, what kinds of things make a difference. All right, the last one on grade it today: the value of Ivy League degrees. <laughs> um, or let me let me change that one: the valuation, the public valuation of Ivy League degrees, which is a very different question. So I think it's clear that people 
are willing to invest huge amounts of time in high school uh, trying to get into Ivy League schools. They're they're willing to pay an awful lot in terms of 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 you know tuition to, to attend them. So if if that's what you mean by valuation, I, I think people you know value them heavily. Like the 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 impact on earnings, I I I think it, it's it that's less clear that that they're you know worth the the amount of investment that that people put into it. Actually, Nat, you know, this is sort of related to what we're seeing um, in these like the gifted and talented high schools and the you know, the exam-based um, high schools, there's an awful lot of controversy about it. Um, but actually, you know, most of the evidence suggests that they have small impacts on student, you know, learning. Uh, right. The value added is the question, right? Like, what, what value do they add after you've already gotten into them? Right. And there's, there's you know, the... The evidence is pretty weak that they ha- that that you get a ton of value added in terms of test uh, test scores and achievement in getting into those schools. So th- there may be some kind of a- illusion where you know, uh, like a scarcity, uh, uh, you know, illusion that that if it's scarce and everybody wants it, gosh, it m- I must want it too, but. But I, I think people get too, at least based on the evidence I see on the actual impacts on people's lives, people get too worked up about those. All right. That wraps it up for graded. Let's get back to recovery from this learning loss, right? So we've been talking about, well, how big is it and so forth, but number of quotes from, from you and I think just your general attitude is, look, it's a big deal and now we need to recover from it. This is a tough question. Is it possible for us to recover from this learning loss? So, so Nat, I do think it's possible, but do I think it likely at this point that districts will do what they need to do in order to uh, help students catch up? I'm, I'm increasingly uh, uh, pessimistic that, that districts are going to be willing to do the things they'll need to do. And I hope we can start a discussion while, while we're, you know, continuing to try to do things like extend the school year or um, uh, use school vacation academies or try to scale up tutoring programs. I hope that we start a discussion about, okay, so what do we do at the back end of this um, to help kids who have not fully caught up. Like, do we add a 13th year of high school? Um, do we make uh, ninth grade sort of a triage grade where if you get to ninth grade and you're way behind in math and, and reading, like, are, are there a bunch of extra resources that that that, um, that you get? Like, we need to ha- start to have a discussion of, like, what are some of the policy options um, that, you know, that states um, or even the federal government could pursue 
in the event that districts don't complete the catch up over the next couple of years? Right. You jumped the gun on my next question, Tom, which was, hey, should retention be part of this pandemic playbook? I mean, if you just look at the math scores and granted the math NAEP scores were the biggest, but wow, that suggests a bunch of kids are going to be about a year behind, right? Like a really like, not like 20% of kids, like somewhere in the 80% of kids. It's dramatic. And if you look sort of backwards at the trajectories of these things, just sort of generally speaking, that means those kids aren't going to be ready for college unless we pull off a miracle, the likes of which we've never done in public schooling, even even close to before. So do we need some brave government leaders, at district leaders, at policy leaders to say, look, if you can't hack it, we're not going to just pass you along. This was a tragedy. And part of it is retention. Yeah. So, so. I wonder if there's a way without retaining kids to provide a lot of these extra resources in specific grades or by um, making like a 13th year, you know, available, uh, maybe not required. Like, I, I think there is something about like the it's it's the stigma of retention of course there's no reason for kids to feel stigma for re- being retained after this cuz you know this this was not you know a result of low effort or you know uh or just you know not being smart enough this is clearly f- for reasons that were beyond kids control so if if there's some way we could we could uh you know design these policies in a in a way that that don't come with the same kind of baggage that that the term retention uh comes with uh um i think that'll be our our the 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 design challenge over the next couple of years is how do you get kids the 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 help they need to catch up but without feeling embarrassed about being behind. Sure. You know, when I have looked at reactions to the pandemic learning loss, the NAEP data, you know, it's been sort of dribbling out for months now. And everybody, you know, experts across the board agree, this is a, this is pretty catastrophic. We need sort of a a response and scale. But many of the responses, and I understand the why behind this, but they're very diffuse, right? Well, we need to really get back to work. It's time to really dig in and we should all pull together. But it seems like the subjects of those sentences are a little bit wanting. You know, and I have my opinions on this, but do you worry about sort of that diffusive talk about how to react? And if we need sort of very particular, not proper nouns, but at least nouns that are particular to a class of actors, where do you think the pandemic linchpin really kind of lies in the next couple of years? So at least given the, the way that we've distributed the, the federal money, these decisions are going to be made by um, district leaders. Um, you know, so, and that that's a result of the way the American Rescue Plan uh, was structured. 
But that means that the communication challenge of informing like 13,000 districts around the country about like what's the evidence of efficacy of different kinds of interventions, that is a huge challenge. Like, um, and for me, the, you know, districts have gotten the message, for instance, on like, oh, high dosage tutoring is is effective and you can just see just a huge number of districts that are trying high dosage tutoring but it also shows that so that's a concrete thing that a lot of people are trying but they're trying it in such small small scales nobody has like done the math on the whole package of interventions that would be required uh, to, to close this gap. So I, 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 I think that most districts are not going to be able to make up for this loss without extending the school year. Why? It's not because like there's, um, you know, I'm, I'm discounting the evidence on high dosage tutoring, but I have just seen the, the districts are struggling getting the number of tutors that would be required to reverse this loss with, you know, with, with tutoring alone. And, um, you know, the, the problem is you don't get to those less politically popular things like, you know, extending the school year, unless you do the math and you realize that the, if I add up the effect sizes from the politically popular things like tutors, I just can't get there with that. Even if you have perfect execution on the on the high dosage tutoring, you're not going to get effect sizes that rival the losses that we're seeing in districts. Right. Well, you, you might for a small share of kids. I mean, that that's the thing. Like, so say if a lot of districts out there lost, you know, a whole grade level, lost the the equivalent of a whole year of learning. And, okay, so the effect sizes of high dosage tutoring are equivalent to about a whole year of learning. That like it, um, so if you could implement very high quality, uh, you, know, you know, the evidence suggests maybe you could get like a whole year of learning. But if, if the average kid has lost a whole year of learning, you're not going to make up for that by providing high dosage tutoring to 5% of kids or 10% of kids. You'll, you'll get one twentieth or one tenth of the effect that you need. Um, and it's, we need more districts like doing that math. Now, until now, that's been almost impossible for them to do because all the state is reporting is, you know, your proficiency rates are down by five points. Your proficiency rates are down by seven points. Well, it's very, it's impossible for most districts to translate like a five or 10 percentage point decline in proficiency into the units that are comparable to the efficacy evidence. Like, you know, efficacy impacts are usually reported in terms of standard deviations. And so, you see your losses, 
measured in proficiency, you see the effect sizes of, of you know, the available interventions reported in very different units. It's just very hard for people to see what we see, which is that these things are, are not just adding, are just not adding up. And so one of the things we hope to do with this education recovery scorecard is, is provide measures of losses that are more easily translatable into, into the units that you could compare to efficacy. And, and we're going to be providing some additional tools in the coming weeks that, that help districts do that. So last question, Tom, because I appreciate you giving us your time and I don't want to take too much of it. A lot of the nation is getting back to normal. We're sort of like, you know, it's kind of post pandemic, man, relax. It's, uh, you know, we're just, we're just, we've been so tired. And that strikes me as a very difficult situation to confront a catastrophe of learning in for two reasons. One is just, well, you, you may not have the gas to meet the challenge. And the other one is, is that, well, if everybody sort of is doing uh, less across the board such that you might say, well, you know, the standard's down a little bit now. We dropped a little bit of our expectations. And that seems totally appropriate when everybody's taking this hit. That seems like a pretty tough landscape to recover on. Am I just being too pessimistic? So, so Nat, I, I, I think you're accurately describing the challenge, but somehow we got to overcome it because it's just not true that everybody was affected the same way. Like, so here in Massachusetts, Newton, Lexington, Andover, Arlington, like higher income districts lost. They did lose ground, but they, they, they lost more like a quarter of a, of a year of schooling. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, by the end of this year, you know, that they're totally back to where they were in 2019. It's, it's the kids in Fall River and Boston and Lawrence and Lynn and Revere, like the, the lower income uh, school districts with a lot of immigrant students. Those are the school districts that are lost like almost a whole year. And so now outcomes were unequal before the, the pandemic hit. But like most pe people need to realize they're just a heck of a lot more unequal today than they were three years ago. Like, so, so, um, not everybody's in the same boat. Uh, you know, we've seen the greatest increase in educational inequity, you know, in, in our lifetimes and somehow we've got to reverse it. But, but I agree with you. Like the reality is people are <clears throat> feel, and a lot of parents don't perceive the crisis like the So there are polls of parents, I've seen polls that suggest 90 plus percent of parents think their kid is at or above grade level now, even after the pandemic. And when you think about it, there's not a lot of evidence that they can see, you know, to the, to the alternative. Like they, they see that their kids are happy going to school. Like I have a 16 year old son. One of the ways I judge whether, things are going okay with him is whether just how hard he is to wake up in the morning. <laughs> but, and I see his grades and, you know, uh, if his grades are okay, I'm, 
you know, it's hard to blame a parent who says, well, like, what's the big problem? My kid's happy to be back and their grades are okay. Well, here's the problem is, you know, they might be in fifth grade and they're not learning to, you know, add fractions with unlike denominators. They're, they're in eighth grade and they're not learning what they, they're not doing grade level content. That's the thing that parents don't realize is that, you know, kids are not doing grade level content this year. And somehow um, we, we've got to get more parents aware of that. Um, you know, that it's like one analogy is, you know, the, the school bus was stuck on the, in a traffic jam, you know, for a year and a half. And <clears throat> now the school buses are back running, you know, at about the same speed they were before the pandemic. That's good news, but that's not going to help kids catch up. <laughs> Somehow we got to figure out how to get kids caught up to covering the grade level content they should be covering. And that's a big challenge. And I, and no district superintendent is going to propose potentially controversial things as long as all the parents seem to think everything's fine. Um, so, somehow we got to solve that disconnect between parent perception and, and th the reality that we see in these achievement measures. I couldn't agree more. And the Education Recovery Scorecard is a help in that effort. So uh, I appreciate it. We'll link to it in the show notes. And Tom Kane, thanks for coming on the report card to talk with us about it. Great. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, Tom Kane. We'll include links to the Education Recovery Scorecard and some of Tom Kane's other work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Google, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review so other people will find the show. We want to hear your comments, questions, and topic suggestions. Mail them to us at ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkinson.